This story is called Across the Waters. I hope you like it. I have not always been this way, living alone in a small apartment at the top of an old building. But though I have lost nearly everything, I still have words I can share. It's the girl, the one who moved into the apartment next to mine, who has helped me remember what is important. Because of her, I am writing these words now, and I hope you will understand. At first, when she came into my life, I was upset. You see, she is a music teacher, and her students are all beginners. She tries to teach them to play the cello. The sounds come through my kitchen wall, starting early in the morning, and not stopping until the afternoon. I tried to ignore it, but how? So finally, I knocked. She answered the door, months ago, back in the fall, and I explained my problem. I explained that I was her neighbor and that all day long I could hear the students' attempts at making music. I explained all this while I stood in the hallway and while she stood in her doorway. When I finished, she looked at me, and I waited. And then she invited me inside. Please come in, she said. I was having tea. Please come. So what what could I do? I had to go in. Her apartment was even smaller than mine. A stairway on one side of it, my apartment on the other. So I was the only one who shared a wall with her, and I was the only one who could hear the sounds. She brought me through the living room, which had two plain wooden chairs and two music stands, and into her kitchen. We sat down there at the table, and she poured me a cup of tea. She said, Mr. Saroff, I'm sorry about the music, but there's nothing I can do. I stared at my hands. Her pronunciation was bad, so I asked her which country she had come from, and she told me, and I nodded, and I said, Brooklyn has many immigrants from your country. And then I asked her, Can you afford a studio or some other place to teach from? She shook her head and said, No, no, I cannot afford another place. And I asked her, When you can afford another place, will you stop teaching here? She answered, Yes, I have always planned on having a place to teach. And then we were both quiet, and both of us looked at our hands, and at the tabletop, and at the teacups. Outside, the noise from the traffic suddenly seemed very loud. Seventh Avenue, a Friday night. Even at the top of the building, the fifth floor, there was noise of horns, noise of police sirens, and even car alarms. Then she said, I thought that as long as I was not as loud as the road, then it would be all right. 
I nodded, and I said, It is funny how I don't notice that noise anymore. And then, maybe because I have always been a bit of a fool, or maybe because it has been years since anyone had been calm enough to sit quietly and share a cup of tea with me, I said something foolish. I guess I will get used to the sound of your students. And being a bit of a fool has its rewards, because she suddenly smiled, and all the sadness in her face was gone, and she reached across the table and took my hands and held my hands, held my hands that had not been held in so long, and said, Mr. Saroff, thank you for your sacrifice. And her funny way of choosing words, sacrifice, made me laugh and smile. And that is how we met. And that is how my life changed. It did not change immediately. At first, everything was as it had been. The day after talking to Lynn, that is her name, was a Saturday, a weekend. But instead of being a day off from her work, Lynn had more students than normal. I could hear them knocking on her door. And then I would hear all the sour, broken, and sad notes, the notes that were far away from any music. I love string music. I love violins and violas, and yes, of course, cello. Who doesn't love cello? Cello is an instrument that tries to sing like the soul and the heart. When I was a boy, before I lost my country and lost my family, before the wars, I had wanted to learn to play a string instrument. But that was like wishing for all the borders to open and all the soldiers to leave us alone. Good wishes, but wishes that were not answered. So that Saturday, I sat for a while, trying not to listen, and when that did not work, I paced in my kitchen and thought that I would have to tell her that the teaching of music could not be done from her apartment. But I thought of how she had quietly accepted my complaint and how I had then agreed to get used to the sound. And as I paced, I realized that I could not face her again to complain. So I walked out of my apartment to the stairs and I started down to the second floor where the building superintendent lives. I would explain it to him, and then he could say that it was not me who was complaining. This was my plan as I went down the steps, but I did not do it. It has taken strength to live as long as I have, and the opposite of strength is to be a coward. And me, of all people, I could not hide behind any authority to have a bad message delivered from any voice but my own. Halfway down the stairs, I knew that I could not turn Lynn in. I had given her permission. True, it was in a moment when her politeness and tea had taken advantage of me. But I had to live with what I had done to myself. So I walked out of the building, and I walked up the avenue, cussing at myself and at this young girl and my bit of peace which I had willingly given away for a cup of tea. As I walked, though, I calmed down. It was a perfect October day, 
crisp and blue. The sidewalks were filled with loud, laughing children. Brooklyn is a good place to live. Everyone is different, but everyone is the same. I hear Yiddish and Hebrew on the corners, also Korean, Russian, Spanish, and Chinese. But mostly, I hear Brooklyn. And the swearing that is not swearing. So as I walked, I stopped muttering to myself. And as I walked, I felt happy that I could still walk so well. And as I walked, I felt happy that I can still see clearly the color of the sky and the sharp lines of the building. And as I walked, I felt happy that I can still hear well enough to know the difference between noise and music. And as I walked, I was happy that I can still hear and feel things that are not just silence. I turned up 6th Street, and I went to Prospect Park, and I found a bench, and I sat, slowly and still, for maybe an hour. My thoughts were as good there in the park as they were in my kitchen. Okay, I said to myself, it is late afternoon now. So I got up, and I walked back to my building, hoping that her daily lessons would be over. After I walked the flights of stairs to my apartment, there, at my door, hanging from the knob, was a small package. I took it inside and I opened it. There was a note card which said, Thank you, and a small, perfectly folded origami cello. I put both of these on my table, and I cooked a dinner for myself, and I went to sleep early. The next day, Sunday, I was prepared to leave again to walk and sit, but there was no noise, no lessons. I sat in my kitchen and read, but I was restless. There was a knock on my door, and when I opened it, there was Lynn. I have prepared food, she said. Would you be pleased to have an early lunch? I have lived in this building for twenty years, and no one has ever invited me to eat with them. Inviting neighbors to share meals is not a thing that New Yorkers normally do, and maybe it is not a thing Americans normally do, but it's something refugees do. And even as long as I have been a New Yorker, an American, I have somehow always stayed a refugee. So I understood. Once you have run and hid and run again, you will always remember. And if you have been turned in, hurt, and cheated, you also learn to both be careful and at the same time the opposite. You learn to recognize honesty. Two days before, it is true, perhaps I was taken advantage of, but this day, the Sunday of no lessons, I could not see any risk. Yes, I answered, I, I would enjoy to eat with you. She had cooked food that is eaten in her country. She explained how she made it and what it was called, and it was good food, and neither of us talked as we ate. Then she poured us cups of tea again, and I asked, No lessons today? No lesson, she said, 
I only teach four days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I smiled and I said, Ah, good. And she laughed then and said, Yes, my students are most terrible, but they will improve quickly. You will hear. I promise. And your other days? I asked. What do you do then? And she told me she worked in a restaurant, but not Sundays. Do you have family here? I asked. She shook her head. No. And she said, no. I come alone. Your cello? I asked. How long have you had it? And she looked down, and her face went sad, and she explained that the cello was not hers, that she had sold her cello to get to America, and that this one was rented from a store. It does not play well, she said. Someday, though, someday soon, I will have a place to teach my students and a cello of my own again. She said this, and I looked out the window at the bright sky and the few clouds, and as something that happens to all of us, not just old men, I was suddenly someplace else, someplace I had been a long time ago. I was at sea, on the water, and the war was over. I was thirty years old. We had rounded past Gibraltar, and we were heading towards Haifa. The Mediterranean was blue and flat, like perfect glass. Our Italian ship sliced the water like a morning swimmer, swimming alone in a sun-warm pool. I was part of the human cargo of two thousand refugees. The upper decks of the ship were crowded with us, all of us facing the bow, east, towards Palestine. There was much talking and many conversations about what to expect, and all of the conversations were hopeful. All of us had escaped some kind of horror, and no one wanted to talk about what they were running from or what they had lost. Instead, the talk was about what we were expecting. The talk was about our dreams. There was a man about ten years older than me, and he and I began talking with each other. He wanted to open a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, in this new country of Arabs and displaced Jews. We were talking in Italian, so I asked if he was a Jew. No, he said, he wasn't. I did not ask him how he came to be on that boat of refugees, and he did not ask me. Instead, I asked him, how is he going to start his restaurant? Did he know people in Palestine? No, no one. Did he have any money? <laughs> no, no, no money. Perhaps he had brought pots and pans and other cooking supplies and could start by having a street stand? Oh, no, no. He had nothing with him except a few books and his clothing. And I laughed, saying, yes, I too only had a few books and my clothing. So I asked, how will you start a business with nothing? And he looked carefully at me before he answered, then he spoke slowly so I could understand 
and know that he was not making a joke. He said, I shall not be starting with nothing. I shall be starting my business with you. Two people with a few books, and we will learn together how to do things in this new country. We were both quiet for a while, standing there, leaning on the rail over the bow of the boat. I knew he was serious, and I knew somehow that the nonsense of such an idea meant it made better sense than anything else, better sense than the war, better sense than the miles and miles of burnt fields and houses, better sense than all the politicians and their empty words. And then after several quiet minutes, I said, Yes, I will start a restaurant with you. And we shook hands there. And I told Primo, that was his name, the name he chose on the spot. He said, this is my new name, Primo, that I would first start by teaching him Hebrew. And in a few days, we would be in this new land where we would learn everything else. And we did. We learned and we worked and we had a restaurant. But that is another story, another lifetime almost, a long time ago. But then I blinked and I was no longer back there with Primo. Instead, I was sitting next to Lynn in a small kitchen in her Brooklyn apartment, and she is quiet, looking at me in the way store clerks sometimes do after I've waited in line to buy groceries but have not reached fast enough for my wallet being instead with my thoughts more than I am being with the trivial matters of living. I'm sorry, I said. I was thinking of another time. But Lynn, unlike the way the store clerks make me feel stupid and slow, she smiled and she said, I am often thinking of other times in this new place. Like today she continued. I went outside and thought I was dreaming. I could smell the ocean and it reminded me of home. She pointed up in the air then and went on. I looked up, and at that very second, there was a big seabird in the bit of sky by the buildings. When it was gone, I still looked. And then she laughed and held both her hands over her suddenly smiling face and said, Boys on the sidewalk came by and said, You okay? I was standing with no movement, looking up. You see, I was dreaming. I had forgotten where I was. She then said, Here, let me play for you. It will explain better. She stood up and got her cello and sat down with it, with the instrument that she told me was no good. And she played, and without expecting or trying, I saw. I saw where she had traveled, across the water. I could see the ocean. I could hear the waves. I felt the distance she had come alone, and I could almost feel the wind, the wind that carries birds, their wings held still and firm. Even for me, a man who has outlived all of my friends and most of my dreams, 
to suddenly be taken to another world by four strings and a bow on a rented cello is a bit frightening. Lynn finished playing, and for a while I kept my eyes closed. When I opened them, she was smiling, and then she said, I hope you enjoyed. I tried to play my story. It is not a song. Your students are fortunate, I answered. And then I added, I just wish they could play as well as you. And then we both laughed. We talked a little bit more, but I was awkward, shy even, sitting there. So I stood up and thanked her for inviting me to lunch. And then I left. I went out to the avenue then and I walked. This time I was not muttering, nor was I swearing. Instead, Lynn's playing was with me. It was with me as I saw traffic go by. It was in the rhythms of my feet moving. It was in the constant beating of my heart. It was in the longing that I carry. I will tell you something now. Living many years does not take away longing, the longing for simple happiness, be that happiness from the quiet sitting and remembering, or the simple happiness of building a good life. That Sunday afternoon as I walked, the memory of wanting to play music as a child suddenly came back to me. The how and the why made no sense. After the war in Israel, and then in other places, many times it should have been easy to have started to learn. I have listened to music always, stopped when there have been street musicians, listened to it on the radio, and have been to concerts where sitting quietly in the dark, I have also closed my eyes and sometimes felt stirrings that I could not understand. This girl, because of her students and because of the shared wall, has taken away my peace, but was now giving me back something better. It was like my time with Primo, in a land of dust and salt, him saying to me, they will love our pasta and they will drink our wine, and making me smile and forget the troubles I had come from. How we worked together then, carrying pallets of bricks and sleeping outside, working labor jobs together and saving all our money, and how, against the odds, we made impossible things happen. How, sometimes, Primo would stop whatever he was doing, put down his work, and grab my hands and say, we must dance, we must dance now, or we will die. And then, not caring who was looking at us, he would make me dance with him as he sang loudly. Now I know Lynn and some of her story, a person with talent who is in a place of hardship. She escaped and brought her gifts with her. There are people like her all about us, but most time no one sees. Some will share with us if we are careful and patient. Lynn will soon be renting a studio to teach from. She becomes happy when she talks with me about her plans. She also smiles when she tells me about her friends that she has made these past few months and this life she has already started to build among these new people. She tells me about these things, and we have tea, each of us holding our cups in two hands, sipping slowly. 
And then she says, Let me hear what you have learned. You will have guessed what happened. You know that I went to Lynn and asked her if she could teach me as a beginning student. You must also know that she did not hesitate. It, too, seemed impossible. First, I had to find a way to rent a cello. And then my hands, that had been idle for years, had to begin to move again. These were small things, though. Harder was the difficulty of listening to my own attempts at playing and knowing how much work it would still be to turn noise to music. You know, because you have listened to me, that I have not given up. I have not given up. I repeat this because I am an old man and I can repeat myself. Already there are moments when my right hand, which moves the bow, and my left hand, which touches the strings, they work together. Then I am reminded of all I have lost and all I have loved and all the beauty that is still my life. And the sounds through my thin kitchen wall the noises started becoming music. All of us students are learning. For a short while, we are traveling with her, our teacher, over the water, sharing her distance, no longer alone. You've just listened to Across the Waters. Written and read by me, Steve Saroff. Music by Eric Forrest. If you've been enjoying anything here on Montana Voice, I hope you go over to iTunes and give a fair rating. Talk to you again soon. Bye.